Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. And today we've got a very special guest on, and that's Eunice Williams, wife of Bud Williams, who together have really changed the way that people both work with livestock and market them. And so Eunice, it's it's honestly just an honor to have you on here today. And, and thanks so much for joining me and, and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad to do it. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, funny because like I've, I've been doing this podcast here now for a year and a half or something. And, and there's certain people that I feel like oh, they wouldn't want to talk to me. And my dad and people have been saying you should get Eunice on for a while. And I'm like, she she wouldn't want to, you know, hop on and talk to me about this. But I finally reached out and you were so willing and I'm so grateful for that. But I'm, I'm looking forward to learning about your your story. And, and even before we got started, you had kind of sent me that email with a, a list of a lot of the highlights throughout your life. And, and it just, you know, reminded me how much, you know, incredible kind of experiences you've had to share. And I know we can't get through each and every one of them in depth, I'm sure. But I'm wondering if, if you maybe even could just start by a, maybe either a kind of a background or a history on how you and, and Bud, you know, met and, and decided to get into this livestock industry? Was it always something you knew you wanted to do or did it just kind of evolve? Oh, it just kind of evolved uh, and actually evolved me being a good neighbor. Bud and I were always, um, stock dogs were always, always very dear to our heart and we always had good dogs. And so anytime the neighbors had problems gathering stock, well, you know, we were always willing to help. Um Bud had a pretty strange mind, and uh, <laughs> one of the, if he tried to uh, cause an animal to turn one way and instead it turned the other way, instead of being upset about it, he said, he said, okay, now what, what was I doing when it hmm. turned to the left when I intended for it to turn to the right? And he remembered that. And so the next time he wanted to do that, he tried that and then actually it worked. So wow. well, that's yeah. funny that you mentioned that because that was something I kind of wanted to ask. It's always something I've been intrigued by is like the what's the minds of people who I guess you could call them innovators, you know, or some sort of you know, di different thinkers. Most of us probably, at least me anyway, I'm a person who I learn by watching people who have figured out things that I've never thought of but the kind of people who are the, the first to actually think differently, there's something on, I mean, was there, was when you first met Bud, was he always, you just, I guess you kind of saw it, said strange, I think is the word you used. Did he always think differently or was that kind of a evolution? Well, you know, I got married, Bud and I married when I was 14 years old. Really? Wow. So, I, <laughs> so I probably would not, didn't have those kind of thoughts. Sure. Um, as far as his, as far as the way he thought about things, we were we were visiting visiting a rancher one time, and he had he had this white cat. It had one little black little black spot on its head, and he mentioned it. But he said, he said, I bet you have never seen an all white cat with just one little black spot. Hmm. And Bud said, What makes you think that that isn't an all black cat with a great big white spot? <laughs> <laughs> and and you know that that really typified Bud's thinking is is he always he always thought uh, 
backwards. <laughs> and yeah. so many of the things that he did was absolutely directly against the, the accepted way of doing things. And more often than not, it worked out better. So <laughs> that's really, that's really neat. <laughs> that's funny. It definitely, <laughs> it definitely gives you insight into how he thought uh, already that that's a pretty clever response anyway. I wish I was that witty sometimes, but uh yeah, I kind of mentioned on the, that list you had sent me, I think there were 14 different kind of highlights and timelines, and we won't be able to get into all of them. But are there some that stand out to you as some of the more, I don't know if you want to call them important, but more uh, impactful, uh, you know, in, in your your guys' careers? Oh, well, actually, you know, I, I just can't think of it as a career. I mean, this was our life. Yeah, our life yeah. was one big vacation. Anytime <laughs> Any time that that uh, something came up that Bud was interested in, we were willing to drop everything we we're doing and go do it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was kind of interesting, it was, in 1958, he saw this advertisement. It was a grass seed advertisement, this grass seed advertisement, and this dairy was talking about, the, how much production it increased when they use their grass seed and change pastures every day with, for, for a new pasture. And when Bud read that, he said, you know, it isn't, it isn't that grass seed, it's the, it's the rotating the pastures daily is what, what the important thing is. Well, at that time, we're working on mountain ranches, and your job was to keep cattle scattered. I mean, if the boss found 50 head of cattle in one bunch, you were in for trouble they wanted scattered um and so it was probably probably eight or nine years later before we ever got to a ranch that that well by that time was old bud was old enough by then that that he had gained a little respect so that they allowed him to to actually bunch the cattle up and move them on the in the these are in mountain pastures and the the um, production increase was just was amazing. In this one particular range, they had two ranches uh, together that, that that were run totally separate, <clears throat> and the the rock range calves were always uh, fifty pounds heavier than three cabins, which is where we were working. They had about a thousand acres in the back country that they'd never used. And Bud and I were determined that we were going to put these cattle back there, or the rock range, the three cabins cattle, put them back there through the summertime. And they didn't like it and they would come out. And by the, at that time, Bud didn't know how to put them back so they would stay. So, so almost every day we'd gather the ones that came out and put them back and the boss was not happy but he didn't want to lose us <laughs> and, so, and so he said well okay but you you can go ahead and do that this summer but you leave rock ranch alone and of course rock ranch is the one though it had the heavier calves the year that we ran all the weight off of these calves those came in 10 pounds heavier than rock ranch so that was almost a 60 pound uh, increase in these even though they weren't stay even though they weren't staying back there like we expect wanted them to but so but it was then, just you moving them to a new area you intent you were moving them to a new area every year and that ended up with 
bumping the weights up 60 pounds and beating the ones yeah. that yeah yeah where, where normally the cattle just scattered out all over the plate all over the range and yeah. um, and stayed <laughs> in their own place they were and and through the time but what did the owner uh, the owner have to say when he saw that <laughs> oh, he was he was definitely happy no we, we have never had any problem with owners were always happy with what we did and yeah. like i say in 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 later years they they pretty well let bud have his way so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i'm i'm just impressed like i'm hearing you talk about I think you said 1958 when you first saw that or, you know, first thought about grazing management of some sort other than just scattering them. That has to be one of the first, you know, I've, I've heard a lots of people talk about adaptive or rotational grazing and stuff in some sorts. I mean, a lot of the early people that you hear the pioneers of this, that talk about it in the eighties and nineties, and this is back in the fifties and you guys had already started to witness and, and experience some of this movement. We were we were quite surprised when the um, because when they when you first started hearing about rotational grazing, they said you'll get more pounds per acre, but your individual um, uh, performance will drop. And that was that was not true at all. And that's when that's when, you know, we, we realized anyway that that the stockmanship was so important when you were when you were doing this sort of thing, because you had, these cattle had to be comfortable doing that, you know, being confined. And that's something that they had to learn and you had to teach them in order, in order to get the the total benefits of the individual performance. Yeah. I wonder if almost like their yeah herd instincts have been like bred out of them. I mean, it, so that, yeah, by the time everybody was just scattering. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. And so you guys were managing these ranches in this ranch? No, but never, ever wanted a management position. Okay. And occasionally, occasionally we wound up, we, we wound up with, um, in a, in a, for a short period of time that you were managing, but he got out of that as soon as he could. So hmm. Why was that? He just liked the the more. He liked day-to-day. something new. He wanted. Oh. He wanted. He he loved to work on projects. Mm-hmm. He liked to go into a place that was really having problems, and um, and he would normally he'd ask them to take to to move all the employees off. You know, put them off to doing something else. Yeah. And he and he and I would would fix the problem and then you'd bring the bring the, the people in and teach them how to keep it that way but it was quite a long time before we ever tried to teach anybody to do it because sure. you know you we we just just worked on the project ourselves yeah so you you kind of talked about you mentioned stockmanship and that term and the importance of stockmanship uh and you kind of talked about how the his mind kind of worked of observing something and then, you know, remembering it and doing that in the future. What was some of the things, you know, I mean, were there any more, I mean, the, the, the management as far as kind of rotational management and moving them to new grass every day, it sounds like this was kind of the early, the, this, this ranch experience was kind of the early, uh, uh, you know, starting of that, but what about other key tenets or principles of stockmanship? Where, where were some of those learned and observed? Well, I, I think they were, well, let's see, probably, probably the first thing is, is just 
pure stubbornness. Um, when the first mountain range we went to work on here, Bud was raised on a farm, you know, workhorses and dairy and a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And the first mountain range we we went on to now, he's, he's say, uh, 23 years old, probably. And, and the, the quote cowboys, you know, they they're pretty rough on each other, and especially <laughs> some farm kid coming in, you know, they they yeah. would always give him the 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 dirty job, you know. He'd be bringing bringing cattle in, and and there'd be three or four that would take off, and they said, "Okay, can you go get those <laughs> because we'll take the big bunch in, and there's just yeah. you, you go get those and." And so he might he might be coming in at midnight, but he he brought me in. And so actually, wow. actually, pure stub pure stubbornness and um and and a real um good memory and mm. and an eye for detail is is basically what a, what brought this all about. Sure. And were there? I mean, I guess I've not. Uh... I've started to learn the sell by marketing, which I want to talk a little bit more, but I, I've not read, I guess, specifically on the stockmanship. Are there principles like high, you know, guiding principles or top things that, that I guess, you know, would highlight some of the, the high the, oh, the things that he's learned and what would absolutely those for one thing, if you want an animal to go straight ahead, the worst place you can be is right <laughs> <Yeah>. behind him. <laughs> and of course, this that here again. That was on the first range job, but, but realized that we're we're do spring roundup, and you had a cow with a pretty mm. young calf, and she she won't go. You know, the herd is getting farther and farther <laughs> away, and you're going along her rump with your horse and and courting them and so on. And and finally, the foreman yelled back, let her go, leave her and come on and help with the others. Well, you start, you pulled out alongside of her to leave her and she starts <laughs> speeding up. And, and, you know, you get to that proper, proper place outside and she's talking to her calf and saying, come on, kid, let's go. And we had, and, you know, as silly as it sounds, we left her. I mean, she was wanting to come, and we managed. We managed to leave her. But then after we got home, I said, "You know, that's really foolish." She said, "You know, if, if we get in the right place, she's willing yeah. to come." And and like I say, he remembered those mm-hmm. things. You know? Yeah. And did he come home and tell them to you? And what did you think when he would tell you about it? No, I was I was with. Oh, him. sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we worked together almost entirely. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. We talked about yeah. it. <laughs> it was... <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. What What are some other ones? So you said that's for one. One of the principles there is if you want an animal to go straight forward to not be right behind her. What else was there? <laughs> she, and that is is moving in straight lines, straight lines, pre- predators curve. When uh, people are talking about driving cattle, they keep talking about prey predator relationship. And the very last thing we want our animals to know, to think of us as a predator. Mm-hmm. So you just have to stop using any of those predator sure. uh, moves. Okay. And and actually, if you just absolutely stop dead still is, is uh, really draws their attention. And things that you really wouldn't be because well, when you think about how a cat stalks a bird is if he, if he moves smoothly enough, he can move forward in that 
prey animal does not realize that he's getting closer all the time. And so anytime that, that an animal stop, that, that something that, that a prey animal is interested in just stops dead still, it draws their attention. Well, they're not going to turn their back on it and move away because it's it, that. So that another thing you want to do is keep moving. And so you move rock back and forth from one foot to another, or if you're on horseback, you can move your arm in and out, you know, not waving it to scare it, but just a movement that they, their depth perception is very good on a moving object. And as long as they know what's going on, well, they're, they're um, more confident in what they're doing. And, and, uh, oh, let's see what other, other things. Like I say, absolutely straight lines is if you're going back and forth, back and forth behind a herd or behind an individual animal. Uh, if you want him to go forward, these, these are things that you're, that you're, uh, you're doing to let the animal do what you want it to do. You're not making it do anything. You're 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 letting it do what it wants to do. And if they're if they're not if the animals are not doing what you want them to do, you've got to change. You know, you're the, you're the one. You're you know they they some of the articles I've read they say if you want it to go forward that you angle directly behind their shoulder or whatever well that might be a good place to start but if you're not getting if you're not getting the results you want you better back up and change your angle and usually that that change is more forward than backwards you know usually if you want them to go forward and you're off to the side you put pressure a lot farther ahead to make them go forward than, than you would ever think. Yeah, man, this is just uh, hitting home a little more, uh, a little more personally after it was two or three days ago here. I, uh, I was moving, trying to move 108 heifers through a gate and I've never had so much trouble with our, our animals usually follow a call, but for whatever reason, they weren't following my call. So then I tried to move them and it's like, oh, then they, they wouldn't move. They would turn around and stare at me. And then when I tried to go, you know, try and call them again, they started walking, but they walked in the opposite direction. I was so frustrated and I'm totally certain that it was something that I was doing, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's, uh, it can be frustrating. And so I'm sure, is there something it, I, I imagine you have to keep your cool and things too. I mean, but was he pretty calm and, and he was, if something oh. wasn't working, he probably took personal, you know, this is something I'm doing, not them. He had all the patience in the world with mm. animals, mm -hmm. but less so with people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but you, you know, you're, you're, um, you, you've created yourself a problem by, by moving, by calling them. Oh. I mean, they have, they have absolutely no, you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're pressuring to move away when all, for your whole, you know, you have trained them to come. Mm -hmm. And they said, but you have no power on that calling. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. in other words, if they don't want to come, you're what? Exactly. And that was the problem was I had to move them <laughs> through a paddock they've already grazed to get to the next paddock. And kind of was the way it, that it had worked out. And so they didn't want to go through that gate because they knew that they had already been there and there was nothing for them. And man, it ended up being a pain. But uh, yeah, I suppose that was maybe the flaw in our part was the poor management and just how we had them lined up. And and yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. no. You, <laughs> you've, got, 
you if you can you can put any animal any place if you have if you have the knowledge and the skills sure. and and uh cows and cattle and sheep and that sort of thing have been selectively bred for many many years mm. to, to put up with a lot of things that they really don't like yeah. and that's kind of and when you start working with with bison or with elk or with well we worked with a lot of fallow deer and and the reindeer you know they are so responsive immediately mm. to to your position mm -hmm. and uh and so it, it really brought back to us how much how much that we are doing wrong that the cattle just say oh well you know, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll put up with huh. that that's that's an interesting way of looking at it i've never i guess i never thought that intentionally about it i've always thought you know some of these bison or whatever they have a wider flight zone you know they're a little more observant or whatever but it's you're right it's probably it it comes out of breeding for animals and managing animals poorly for so long that they've just almost adapted to being, you know, moved in a not a very good way. That that's, that's <laughs> interesting. But so yeah, you said you've worked with elk and 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 things like that. And uh, maybe talk a little bit about those experiences and what came out of that. Um. Well. I, it's, a lot of it is just we we moved we moved about 150 elk from, from California to Texas, mm -hmm. uh, load them on the livestock truck. We went in a, a week or so ahead of time. These are all elk that were under pasture. You know they they had been handled, uh, but normally they say when they move elk that, that they'll have a 10 percent death loss. And and by working with them ahead of time, another thing that we really feel is important is teaching animals to take pressure. And uh, I don't know if you worked with horses or colts and so on, no. but it, it's almost like sacking out a colt. You know, when you when you first first start working with, especially a range animal, is is you you just you you do something that frightens that you back off. Or, I shouldn't say frightened, the pressures that more pressure than they're comfortable with. And then you back off and then more than pressure and back off your pressure release is, is a really important, important thing. And, you know, if you want movement, you, you don't just stand back and have patience and hope they're going to go through, but there is a place that you can pressure them that, that will, will create movement and, and you learn is what direction that movement's going to go when you pressure a certain way, and um, the the any the any time that you hit working with these these wild animals quote um, is you have to teach them to take pressure because some some of these you know they see you half a mile away and they're and they're they'll either take off or come after you and so <laughs> which which happened occasionally out in the Aleutian Islands when we were gathering those wild cattle but they were um I don't know if I'm answering the question that you want. no that's, it's perfect I love the the um well, just the the detail on the experience that that yeah people won't have, and the Aleutian Islands is something I wanted to hear about too because that 
I don't know where I heard that. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before, but that's a pretty incredible story, what you guys were able to do. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't so enjoyable at the time, but. <laughs> oh, it was a lot of fun. We, we really liked it. In fact, of all the places people ask where, where would you like to live for the rest of your life? And that was where we both said, really? but mainly because we were by ourselves and the, um, area the country is absolutely gorgeous if if you if you like to watch grass grow mm -hmm. i mean the feed conditions are just wonderful it rained every day really <laughs> <So> <laughs> it was but these cattle had been abandoned for over 20 years they had they had put 35 herefords and 35 scottish islanders on this on this island um in a bull of each breed and when when the it was a BLM permit and they had a permit for like 300 head and there was over 700 head of cattle on it 20 years wow. later and BLM was having fits you've got to get some of these get these cattle mm. off so, so we were hired to go in and gather them and and barge them off, barge a bunch of them off so but now these were not, when they talk wild cattle down in this country, they're talking spoiled cattle. These wild, these cattle on, on Simeonov had never seen anything they were afraid of. There was no predators. There was an e they had eagles and a little gray fox, not much bigger than a house cat, was the only thing you consider predators there. And, and when, when you rode out to try to gather a group of them, they didn't take off running. They they started marching towards you and say, "What are you doing yeah. here?" Sounds almost and, like people like the pioneers talking about what bison herds were at one point too. They almost had like yeah. a natural ignorance towards humans because they I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well they they didn't consider they didn't consider them anything they needed to be worried about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Carry on with it. Yeah. So you had to, you were hired to barge to get these animals off of a massive island, I imagine. A pretty large. No, it was about probably 30,000 acres. Big enough. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was kind of interesting how certain areas, they kind of ran, they ran in kind of family groups and certain areas, it, they would almost look straight Highlander and other areas they'd almost look straight Hereford and and but but the Herefords were kind of fuzzy okay. <laughs> and the um, Highlander cattle grow horns that would put a longhorn to shame oh yeah they're and like I say they they certainly were afraid of us hmm. yeah yeah so yeah what was that well and i'm curious at this point when was this and were you guys kind of starting to create a name for yourselves as far as being able to work and you know stockmanship and being able to work animals or how did they call you oh uh, let's see how did we, no i tell you no we were we had i don't i don't know when this quote create a name for for us begin because that wasn't important to us, but no, we had been, we, but all worked with a lot of different ranches in, in this would be in Northern California. 
and uh, and that was when our daughter was was going to school. So we pretty well stayed in 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 the Northern California area until she got into college. And uh, Bud was feeling he he had kind of a fragile mind, and he was feeling a lot of pressure from a lot of these guys that he'd been working with. And this one particular, he said, he said, you know, he's just, he, cause he, this one ranch, he just kept expanding and expanding. And, but said, you know, he said, he's in over his head now. And, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to be stuck here forever, keeping him from getting anyway, yeah. <laughs> whatever. And, and he said, and so when Tina went in, it was in, college we, he said where is the farthest place that we can think of that, that nobody can find me and we had sold a dog to this uh, sheep dog to this guy that was ranching in the Aleutian Islands and so so we said you know that'd be a good place so I wrote to the uh, Department of Agriculture in Alaska and just asked for a list of names of people that were that were ranching in that country and then I wrote to them and asked if they were hiring and Bud said, for guys' sakes, don't tell him I know anything. He said, I just want a simple ranch job <laughs> so I can get my head straight. Yeah. And so that so that's how we wound up there. That's so funny. And that simple job didn't last very long because that the first thing this the guy that hired us, we we he he bought these cattle on Simeonoff mm-hmm. and we went out to gather them. So we had them, we had them all gathered into one area and there's a another tiny island that just connected by a sandbar and we uh, put a fence across that so as we gathered them we put them into this thousand acre place so anyway the barge finally gets there and we start bringing him up well you know bud was just one of the crew and so (laughs) we worked for three days and could never get any cattle even close to krell so Terry's sitting at the kitchen table with his head in his hand saying everything I own is got tied up in this and I'm going to lose it all. And so Bud said, well, if you'll do what I tell you, we can get him in. So from then on, that simple little land range job was was gone. But yeah, but we did get him in. So. How? How? So uh, what, what were you? Well, I'm curious. First, how did it how what were they trying? That was a total fail. And then what did Bud? Just a normal way of going out and, and everybody and circling hollering. around and moving and hollering. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so the first thing we did is, is we had, let's see, we had about probably, probably 800 head on this area mm-hmm. in this other little island. So we just pushed them all the opposite way, pushed, pushed them down right against the ocean. And um, here, this is taking pressure. You know, you just you just push them right until they're really uncomfortable, and you back off, and then you come in again. You know, push them in. Well, this worked. We did this for about about half an hour, <clears throat> and you hear this rumbling in the middle in the middle of this herd. And you got to remember now, you've got you've got sixty um, percent bulls. And all of these cattle are just dying of old age. So, so, so here in this this bunch of cattle, we're, we're pressuring against the ocean, the ocean, and all this, and it sounded like a, an angry beehive. You just this humming, just a real strong humming. And about fifty of these old bulls 
started marching out, just just coming right, just walking, but just marching out right towards us. And so Bud told everybody, he said, back off. And he just picked up his position on the way that they wanted to go. You know, he, he just, so just like he's, okay, you want to go this way? I'm going to drive you the way you want to go. And then he drove him around. It, he drove him around and then he just kept changing his positions to make a turn. And they then they just marched right back and marched into the herd. And then then we went around and gathered them up and, and uh, we were able to drive them then. But, you know, you weren't going to turn those bulls back, believe me. <laughs> they, they had their mind make up. They weren't going to fool. We didn't want to mess with that anymore. But Yeah. So once you got those 50 bulls back into the herd, they all kind of had felt the pressure. No, you just kept, you just kept handling them. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were content then, you know, they, they, like I say, you didn't tell them they had to do anything. Yeah. You, you don't know that and just change their mind where they wanted to do mm. it. And that's, that's what, what he was able to do. We only had, we only had two bulls that were any problem and one, and, and he would just patrol his little family group and and you got too close he'd charge mm-hmm. but but he didn't follow you very far and uh, and in order to get him we 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 did shoot him okay. he was the only animal and we needed camp meat anyway yeah, yeah. so so we said just like you you you're the one that volunteered mm-hmm. so but yeah. uh, but you you didn't. You didn't go right out and gather them up. You had to. You had to work with them. Like, sure. But always keep saying working with them, and people say, "What's that?" And he says, "What they need." And you know, it's very frustrating for people because they want you to to draw them a diagram. Sure. So it's kind of apply pressure, and then when they release the pressure, they try. You kind of allow their natural instincts and and kind of work them to guide them into where you wanted to go in a way. Sort of at that point, like. Um, if that makes sense. When you apply pressure against the ocean, what was that doing? I guess that. Well, you had you had to have something to to pressure them against. If you were if they felt pressure and they could get and get away from yeah. that pressure on their own, you know, it's um, you you couldn't you couldn't apply enough pressure to make them feel uneasy. Is sure. what I'm getting at. You know, they had to actually feel uneasy and then realize that it didn't hurt them. You know, and so. So the next time they can take a little more and the next time they can take a little more. And that allows you to be able to work them close, close enough that you can actually influence their direction. Sure. So. Okay. Huh. And I think I remember you sharing this story as well. Something about like actually loading them onto the barge was kind of a unique thing too. Cause the barge was maybe bobbing up. Was this, you know, well, this was, this was a different story. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sure. No, this this particular you you had to have good facilities for sure. these. Okay. <laughs> this, when we loaded those cattle, we had a good beach, sure. and the the barge was was what it was was the old uh, World War II landing craft. Yeah. You've probably seen movies yeah. where, where they run up on the beach and the bow gate goes down and the tanks and the men run off. Well, that's what we were loading the cattle on. But on Simeonov, you had a good you had a good beach. And we actually built a chute. It had we built a corral and built had a chute to it. And and when the tide goes out, you're sitting there high and dry, so it's no problem to load. Sure. Um, okay. The the other place <laughs> that was that was where we were barging these cattle too. They had a slaughterhouse on Umnak Island, okay. 
and uh, the cattle there had been, they had been, they had also had been abandoned for quite a few years when when this fellow we were working for bought them and and then the outfit just before them had a slaughterhouse had built a slaughterhouse there and they they went broke but before they did they they slaughtered everything that they could get in so the only cattle that were left on the islands were the ones they there that the outlaws and their descendants were all was left so anyway we worked with those we gathered a lot of those and, and put them through the slaughterhouse but um he also leased another island and that he wanted to to put put some some breeding stock on so we we gathered i think we had about 70 head or so that we were going to alter this other island and we picked them up about 25 miles or so from headquarters and there's still a lot of World War II bridges across these little streams. And this was in the late 70s. So from the 40s to the 70s, you know, these bridges weren't in very good shape. And Bud said every animal is going to walk across every bridge. And these streams weren't that big. I mean, you know, they could afford them real easy. And I tell you the truth, I didn't really feel comfortable riding my horse across these little bridges, but said no, but said no, every animal's got to go over every one of these bridges. So after 20 miles of driving them and properly and, and putting across these, these little bridges as we're coming up, we did not have any corrals or facilities whatsoever. Here's, and this particular, uh, place they, it was not a sloping beach and so it, you couldn't you couldn't set it solid and so we tied it to an old cat the old caterpillar on one side and the other side tied it to a, an old pier what was left of the world war ii pier and and but you know the way the waves are it would raise that that bow gate about about two feet and and it set over about four feet and the next wave would come and just set it back and um these cattle were working so well and you know just going right straight forward and we just, when when that bow gate would raise up they'd they'd pause and then they'd watch it as soon as it sat down about eight or ten hurry to get up there before wow. it raised it again <laughs> and and the the all these cattle loaded just really well. Yeah. Some uh, quite a few years later, someone asked what was the most difficult thing we'd ever done, and neither Bud or I even thought about that really? because <laughs> it was not it was not difficult. It was either going to be easy or it was going to be impossible. It was there was nothing difficult about it. So. <laughs> Interesting, huh? man. Well, I'm curious now that you've mentioned that. What was the most difficult thing you've ever done? Or maybe, like you say, there's either impossible or easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I don't. I I can't really. I Same can't point. really say. Huh. Well, that's pretty cool. So. That says a lot about yeah his skills and your skills <laughs> and what you guys did. That's that's pretty cool. Um. Are there any other highlights, either stories or principles around the stockmanship that that you know are coming to coming to mind that we should mention before I move on to more of the the marketing side? Oh, probably not. I could. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. How but, much time do we have? Uh, yeah. you know, but <laughs> never never thought that he had learned it all. Mm -hmm. You know, right right up to the very last he was learning new things sure. in fact our son-in-law one time said 
he said, but when am I going to know? I don't, the point was not to know as much as you do, but when am I going to know enough that you're going to get off my back, I guess <laughs> is what he was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> and Bud, Bud said probably 20 years after I'm dead, yeah. <laughs> because he said, he said, I, he said, I've got a head, I've got a 20 year head start on you and I'm learning more every day. Mm. So, and he always felt that, and, and the, it is just amazing the amount of control that you have on on livestock, hmm. if and and you give it all away when you start trying to overpower them. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That that right there is a good statement too. I think that people probably need to hear because probably for most folks the instincts are to just go to pushing, you know, forcing, pressuring. It is and, right, and, and trying to frighten them away from yeah. you. Is, is the whole thing is either force them away or to frighten them away mm-hmm. and and you you don't have much control over yeah you you can hope yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. and yeah and for some maybe that works although it's probably not the most efficient like you said animals have been kind of bred to deal with poor poor stockmanship and stuff and over time it'll work but it's not as efficient i mean I, uh, I, I, now that I think of it, my dad, I have actually watched, I think we've purchased the videos on his stockmanship and watching him, you know, independently by himself work, you know, a single animal out of a group of however many and stuff. It's totally possible. You don't need a handful of cowboys and all these facilities to do things. No. And then you think of the stress that's involved when you start thinking, I, they, they say that when that they figure about a 3% death lot in freshly weaned calves, Mm -hmm. And you think, how, why should that be? You know, you take this calf that is equivalent to a to a teenager. I mean, he's ready. He's ready to go, and perfectly healthy. Maybe taking him from from, from real poor feed situation. You put him, give him the best feed and the best medical care, and and three percent of them die. What is that doing to the production of of the? other 97% and and it's strictly stress and this is the thing that 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 bud has learned to to not only work your animals with less stress but you can take the stress that they have off of them mm-hmm. so so you don't you don't have these these health problems you you just shouldn't and then the last i the last few years when we had questions about people having having um uh sick calves while they're on the cow that was just unheard of in mm. in back when we first started working cattle because these old cows were wild and they took care of their babies and even though they were gathered and they were were handled really rough <clears throat> when as soon as as soon as they could get out of the krell that that cow said come on baby i can take care of you and there's nothing to worry about anymore but now we have, we're putting so much stress on these cows that the that the cows are actually putting stress on their calves instead of taking it off of them and I, we bud and i were both just flabbergasted when we started hearing people having stress having health problems with the calves while they're still on the cow wow yeah yeah, and I've heard on multiple occasions people talk about just switching their their stockmanship, working with livestock and feedlots and cows, how much that's reduced. That alone reduces health issues, like you're saying. So it's it's not a, a fluke. Yeah, I hear it time and time again. And actually, you know, the, that's what 
the main the main thing of Bud and I both is is that we wanted the li the livestock to be handled better. It's kind of a, it's kind of nice that the ranchers are making a little more money because they are working them better. But we just hate, hated to see the livestock stressed to the point yeah. that they are. Yeah, yeah. No, that that makes sense. Hmm. Well, uh, that's obviously a huge part of probably what Bud and, and you are known for is his stockmanship, but also he's clearly been innovative in his marketing strategies and is kind of the original founder of the sell by marketing strategy. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about where that came from. Some of the, I love how you're able to, you've got these cool stories that you can tie to a learning experience and it's really, really cool. So I'm curious if there's any more kind of stories that came with learning experiences where he started to, you know, you know, gather some, some knowledge around this. Oh, he, he's always been interested in, he figures, you know, when when he's at the house and nothing else to do, he's got a pencil and paper and figuring these things out. And and uh, when and he got interested in the commodity market. And actually, the way he traded commodities was the basis of, of his of his cattle uh, uh, market strategies, is <clears throat> because he always traded spreads. He he, tra he traded like wheat against corn or or one month against another month you know you you didn't care whether you didn't care whether the price went up or down you just knew that the spread between the two was illogical and at some time before before they terminated that they were going to come together in, in a in a more logical way and uh, and i guess that was kind of the background of his marketing strategy um Alan Nation was, uh, Bud and Alan Nation really got along well together, and uh, and but uh, he, we talked at, at um, several of Alan's presentations, and anytime they get together, just personally, well, Bud and him would talk marketing, and uh, and so Alan really, Bud wasn't all that interested in in quote teaching that. Uh, he he used it a lot with the people that he was working with. You know, if they if if um, he'd be working with them on stockmanship problem, but but you know, there's no it isn't going to help any to help any to have your stock work better if you're going broke because you're marketing incorrectly. So so that that was really how that got started. Um, Alan had a a period. He, you know, he was always such an upbeat kind of a guy, and we, you know, reading the magazines, reading his paper all the time. There's a period that he was really down. I mean, he was re re writing some things that were pretty melancholy, and so uh, one time, but said, you know, you bet after me to teach a stockmanship school. So maybe, maybe we ought to do that, Alan, <laughs> just to perk you up a little bit, and uh, and they just immediately they were terribly successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I, I, so I guess what did the transition look like from him, you know, doing this in commodities marketing to livestock marketing? And, you know, I mean, where did he start to experience that? Not, a, not, not, no transition at all. I mean, it's just a matter that, that, you know, like I say, he's always fiddling with a pencil and paper 
and he knew how knew what the costs were. In other words, you know what you can figure out the cost of what it's going to cost you to to raise the heifer calf to where she's a producing cow, and 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 whether and whether the price of a producing cow is you know sometime during a cow's lifetime, usually about three times, at least twice. They're just so terribly, terribly overpriced. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And then they drop off to almost nothing. You know, they're just you know, producing cow, bring the same price as a, as a, as a slaughtered cow. And so it, um, he just, he had a way of figuring that, and you work on by working, and you're working on today's markets. You're not. Um, you're not guessing in the future whatsoever. Is just right today's market, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's worked very well for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, that you mentioned the cow thing, and that was something that was just kind of we had a fair discussion group that got pretty you know in depth. There was a lot of conversation going on there on the the when to sell a cow, and maybe right. you want right. to provide. I mean, most of these listeners probably haven't you know gotten that discussion group, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about. Uh, what but but in your perspective would have been on on when is the proper time and how to know when the right time is to sell a cow okay the proper time is when the animals that you have that you own are overpriced mm-hmm. and there's formulas that that um, that he's made has figured out that, that you just punch punch in the prices from the the today's auction mark or within a week you know it's not today mm-hmm. but within a week of today's auction mark and you can tell what class of of livestock whether it's a class or the sex of livestock is overpriced to others you know it just goes back to being wheat and corn and you know that it's illogical for them to be that far apart and and if you consistently sell the overpriced animals and replace them with underpriced animals uh you're you're creating cash flow right along and and you're going to end up with with uh with making more money for for your operation yeah yeah and on the on the cows anyway kind of the classes that you would be evaluating would be essentially just different age groups right yeah probably probably is um and people think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be running to the auction every day. I don't like setting the auction. You're not a cow calf man. Never needs, never needs to buy anything at the auction because your replacement and your replacement cost is how much your your cow is your factory. You know that your buy your your uh, cost to buy back is how much it costs you to run a cow for a year and produce this calf. So you're not you're not changing the genetics on your on your property, and um, and you're not actually buying or selling anything. It's that cow is going to die sometimes. You're either she's either going to come up open or or something's going to happen. The bud says you should never ever. Uh, have to sell it have a cold cow to sell you might have one that broke her leg or came up open but you know not not just through age she should have all already been sold in this discussion you were talking about i i said that you should never have never have a, a anything older than seven years on your place because you're at that point you know, they're losing value and and there just is but 
you know, even when Bud started talking about this to me, I said, I said, no, that can't be right, Bud, because, you know, the you know, everybody has said that, that cows probably, you're not making any money off of her heifer replacement until she's still sold her five, her fifth calf. And that's when you're telling her you need to sell that cow. But, you know, they're comparing that, that heifer development cost against a cull cow. Yes. Yeah. But you you put that heifer development cost against against that cow when she's at the prime of her life and in a cycle of, of the market that that she's way overpriced. It's just you know there's no way that you can afford to keep her unless you're, you're unless you're a purebred breeder and it's important to you to have some longevity um, uh, records. But for for a commercial producer, it's, you're you're just giving away an awful lot of money. Yeah. So. And I really like how you you frame that kind of not argument, but that response to the question of, well, they don't make money until the fifth or sixth or seventh calf or whatever, because I've, I've heard that very same argument from a person not too long ago here. And I, you know, I don't really know how to exactly respond, but like you said, I mean, you're right. If you compare heifer cost to call cow, $1,600 heifer to $700 call cow. Yeah. That, yeah. You're not going to make any money at five years, but you know, your five-year-old cow is not $700, it's $1,400 or whatever, you know, it is. And that's totally different analysis at that yeah. point. Yeah. You've almost got no depreciation cost. We were doing a school in Montana the first time Bud brought this up <laughs> to, to a class. And it, it was a good thing it was the end of the day because because we never got any farther. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, they, they were, flabbergasted and not only amazed but they, they absolutely knew better yeah. there's a two-day school we went home that night and but figured all sorts of scenarios to mm -hmm. take us to the next day and i don't think he convinced anybody really? but, yeah. but at least he, he kind of laid the the groundwork for mm -hmm. for future times and it is amazing to me how quickly that spread you know usually usually something like that doesn't doesn't move into the mainstream very quickly but you know now today everybody says you know it, it's not all that unusual for them to to realize that that there is something to it yeah it it's probably definitely more spread than at the time, but I, I still run into so many people who struggle with that. Oh, I mean, yeah. And it, I did for the longest time. It was actually when I had Wally Olson on this podcast, and I don't know how he said it exactly, but it was kind of funny. He's like, I shouldn't say it like this, but there's no such thing as straight line depreciation. I don't remember how he said it. He kind of he kind of almost said it pretty in aggressive way that it was like, however he said it finally made it click on my head. It was like, you know, you're right. <laughs> like, yeah, I needed to hear it that way oh, to say yeah. Yeah, you're right. There is something to this and it's kind of a complicated, not a super complicated, but it takes a little bit of mathematical figuring to really see how it makes sense, but it does. Well, it goes it goes against human nature, it, mm -hmm. and of course, you know that's a paradigm, and and which is, uh, you know, every every generation has their buzzwords, but, yeah. um, and it's just like it's just like changing with stockmanship, realizing that we can't move these animals being a predator we've got to work with them instead of instead of forcing them, and it's the same way with with the the. Um, the marketing is is uh, and and understanding that, it, that just because a cow has a calf every year, she's also depreciating in value. Yeah. 
And I think Wally, you know, Wally is kind of, so many people, in fact, in this, in this uh, uh, line that you were talking about on the, on the list, um, you know, they, they tie it over to tax depreciation. And of course that has nothing whatsoever to do with what, with what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. No, that's actual cow value. Yeah. Depreciation. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, any, any other thoughts or stories on the depreciate or on the, the marketing side that stand out to you of your, your career and experiences? Oh, oh, not really. You know, marketing that's, that's pretty cut and dry. That, that, that has never been our, our great love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but said, you know, thing, he said, I like, like to work with the ranchers and make them more profitable with the with their cattle and 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 make it a pleasure for them to to when they have to work their cattle that it isn't a big stressful situation but he said if they if they go broke because they're marketing wrong he, he said you know that's not good for for man or beast yeah so. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's funny that yeah it's something that he didn't even so much enjoy but it you're right it all goes hand in hand so that's a good good point um it's pretty cool and, and i'm curious this is kind of a maybe a weird question for you but i was I, I was thinking about the kind of the idea of legacy lately and for a lot of people that's like their land you know they're passing it on to the family or maybe you made some sort of a community change in, in your community but there's not many people that can say like you and bud that have left a legacy that really is across the the country or even the world in in these principles and, and ideas that have like you said with the marketing how fast it took off and is now something that people practice across the world i mean that's how does that feel <laughs> i mean to to have made a a, a a kind of a global legacy in a way it actually it was just a burden for bud <laughs> really <laughs> yeah no he he was a very private person believe it or not and <laughs> but he just he just absolutely felt um a uh, responsibility is mm. as responsibility on the the cattle handing on the stockmanship like i say that you know the marketing and the money that's you know that's he didn't really care a whole lot about that but and he was he tried for a long time to get a university interested in this mm. and uh, and he finally decided that that they weren't and they were they were all interested quote you know oh man we've got to do something about this but then they never did it so that was and actually Alan Nation was a, was a really big proponent really got this started for us and one of the worst the hardest things um, for uh, starting the schools is that Bud would never charge anybody for anything. You know, if, if they had a big project they wanted him to do, and they will how much is it going to cost? And well, wait till I get it done. You pay me what you think it's worth. Mm. Well, you know, that's, you, you can't run a business, a, yeah. a business that way. A lot of people, you know, wouldn't even think about letting, you know, well, I'm not going to hire you. You know, I don't, wanna, I don't know what, what you're up to. So, uh, that was the reason that we wound up in Canada at VT Theaters because, uh, but we were up there just, I think it was HRM asked Bud to speak at, at one of their meetings up there. And uh, this, then uh, the Davies family from VT Theaters came to it. And for some reason, Bud and, and Richie Davies just clicked and, and uh, he, Richie said, well, what would it cost? 
cost me? What have I got to do to get you to come up here and actually work with my crew so we can wean calves in the feedlot? And uh, Bud said, well, I really need somebody to help get these schools started. And uh, he said, well, I'll take over that. So he, so he started putting the price on it. And, and we just, I mean, that, believe it or not, that was really the hardest thing that, that we ever did was, was actually charge anybody to help, to help them. Huh. So. Man. And, and now, you know, what people would give to go to a Bud Williams school taught by him today. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. This, yeah. It, you've really, you, you two have created a pretty incredible legacy. Well, when the the first thing that Alan Alan asked Bud to do, he put on a one day stockmanship thing in 1990, and I videoed it. Well, I used to video a lot of things so he could watch him himself, see where he could improve on it. And and as and as soon as when he saw that video, he said, "Eunice," he said, "I'm totally relaxed now." He said, "If I die tomorrow, there the information is there." He said, "It's not very fancy, but the information is there." And uh, so that that was always a, a great load off of his mind. Cool. So. Yeah, huh. that's pretty cool. And well, thank you so much for sharing this. This has been wonderful. I I've enjoyed getting to know you guys or you and and your life in this way. It's, and I really, like I said earlier, I appreciate how you you share the value. You connect you connected the uh, the learning and the educational piece and the actual you know the principles and the tidbits to a, a unique experience that you guys had which i think is really cool so i enjoyed it a, a lot thanks a lot uh, yeah but i i do before i let you go uh want to give you the opportunity to plug i know you and, and your daughter uh, teaches schools and 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 have some resources some of these things that you mentioned and actually i should before i forget mention my dad i told him that i was gonna have you on today and he mentioned that we are still enjoying pancakes from your sourdough starter that you sent him <laughs> so <laughs> is that yes. real is that yeah right? so thank you very yeah, much for that that's uh and what how old how many years is that now well and and i I think I got the starter in 1962, and I got it from a fellow that his mother brought it from South Dakota in 1917. And so wow. it, in 20, 2017, yeah. I, it was 100 years old, and I just put a little blip on my, my website, and also I think, Fer, uh, I think Kit Farrell picked it up. And uh, I gave out like 150 starters yeah. of that. And we got one of them. And I still, and, yeah. <laughs> I still have people every once in a while say, one, just last week, my sister came and cleaned house for me and threw out my sourdough. Oh. <laughs> she thought it was Oh, no, really? Out, so you don't, you lost yours? Out the yeah. Oh, cleaned out the refrigerator and, and threw out. So he really wanted to know if I still could give him another starter. Wow. Which I always do. Yeah. Man, well, we enjoy, I, every now and then that'll invite me and my wife over for pancakes. So we, we get to enjoy it too. But, uh, I I wanted to mention that before I forgot, but I also want to give you the opportunity (laughs) to plug, uh, you know, your, the schools that your family run and and some of the resources that you, you have to to market. Well, Tina and Richard, Tina's my daughter and her husband are, are teaching both marketing and, uh, and stockmanship. Uh, their um, uh, w- website is uh, handinhandlivestocksolutions.com. And, and that's their, their and so it's H-A-N-D-N 
H-A-N-D-LivestockSolutions.com. We, I, I still sell the this original five-hour video that Bud said was good enough. <laughs> and and uh, then, then just when he was housebound with, with his last illness, uh, we started putting together all the video clips that we used in our schools. <clears throat> and he narrated most most all of them uh some of them i i was able to dub in from schools when he was narrating some i narrated myself but actually every video clip that that i had that that showed anything i've i've saved it and we put that all together and it comes up to about 18 hours it was it's a full it is a full two-day school i had a really excellent place to video from a full two-day school plus all of these extra video clips and we still have we have that available that's all on a on an external hard drive that'll plug into your your computer but had a special special way of working with horses that that uh I used to ask him, let me sell that. He said, no. He said, I have enough trouble trouble arguing with the dog trial people. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to get involved with horse trainers. But we used to give that to a lot of our friends because we've had a lot of friends injured by horses and that shouldn't happen. Yeah. and we and so I I do have and then and then I did put together just a little bit on on uh, on stock dogs sure. in because we're you know the the real <clears throat> real open range range <clears throat> the range dogs are are there are very few of them the only people that the people that want to work a dog they don't have anybody but trial people to. Mm-hmm to uh, talk to and and that's just not what you, you don't you don't want a trial dog in, on a mountain ranch they work really nice on the flat pastures where you can see them and tell them what to do but but you know you, when your dog's out of sight all the time well you know they've they've got a and they already know it you know that's the whole thing is <laughs> We and we love we love to watch a dog trial and it is so you can see that dog is so frustrated you he knows that you're telling him the wrong thing <laughs> that a trial dog is going to do it anyway. Yeah. It, oh wow. It, well, and and those those video or the ones that you do have for sale were those all on the yeah. hand in hand livestock solutions or was there somewhere? Else? No, okay. no, they're on our our website is stockmanship.com. Stockmanship.com. Okay. Yeah, and they're they're available there. Perfect. We also actually Tina and I finally put our biography together, and it's called Smile and Mean It. And there was no doubt that that was going to be the name of it because most of the things that that um, especially with working with animals, you've got to be in a good frame of mind. You've got to be happy. You've got to, and you can't you can't fool them. <laughs> And that's about 600 pages. Okay. <laughs> we had as one friend of mine I used to write to all the time, and she kept all the letters that I wrote. So, so that really is the basis of it. The book is it was all right. Actually, why that's why I have the dates so yeah. correct because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I she saved all those letters and gave them back to that's me. That's cool. So. I will have to. That's one I'll have to get my hands on someday. That that would be that sounds like a really cool read, but. 
Well, good. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for spending some time with me this morning, Eunice. It's been lots of fun. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.